today, we're going to talk about the topic of hell. That's everybody's favorite topic. That's why everyone comes to church. Raise your hand if you ever heard a sermon on the topic of hell. So I was praying on the way over here this morning. I cannot remember ever in the history of my Christian walk, much less as a minister, I don't think I've ever spoken a sermon dedicated strictly to the topic of hell. I've spoken about hell, but I don't think I've ever done a sermon on hell. And so I wanted to apologize. I don't know how that happened. I don't think it was intentional. I don't think I was intentionally obfuscating or skirting a tough issue. I tend to not have as much difficulty with those kinds of things. Um, but I just realized that I had never done that before. And so, um, so I'm sorry, because uh, hell, like other topics, is there in the scriptures. So let's talk about it for a moment, okay? What comes to mind when you think of the word hell, other than fire? What comes to your mind when you hear the word hell? Okay, so you think of weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, yes, in the back, thank you. Separation from God. I'm just going to repeat this for everybody as well. Yes, ma'am. Punishment. Pain. We're getting a lot of one-word synonyms now. Flesh them out a little bit more, yeah. Condemnation. Okay, condemnation from God, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's below us, okay, so you think about a directional concept, okay. Uh, Did you have your hand raised? Okay, so separation and the loneliness that occurs from separation, Um, yes. So it's difficult to even think about and consider because of the, the, the... possible realities of, of, of hell and the people that might be there and so on and so forth. Uh, yes, a couple more. Okay, the eternality of hell. Uh, yes, in the back, thank you. Okay, okay. so that there's this, um, this opposing contrast, right, that without hell there's no heaven, this duality, darkness and light, etc. Yes, um, yes. Regret and hopelessness, okay. Last one. Was there one more? Yes, sir. Okay. So the disappointment of missing, of missing it, right? Okay, so we're going to jump in here a little bit. And obviously, my same disclaimer every week, right, is I like near the edge of a cliff and I peer down and I say, disclaimer time, right? I'm not going to cover every aspect of hell, probably not many of them, but I want to touch on uh, one particular aspect of hell. And, um, and connect it to the broader scope of why we're talking about it in this series. So this word that's translated hell, when we read hell in our English Bible, does anybody know how many times the word hell occurs in the English Bible in the New Testament, roughly, approximately? Five-ish, any other guesses? Higher or lower, Jeopardy, Trebek? What's that? Six? <laughs> 6.1, all right. Um, it occurs 12 times, uh, and this, this word uh, in the original language, ge'enna, is uh, from a Hebrew origin. It's actually a word that was uh, used to represent an area outside of Jerusalem. It was a valley, um, the Valley of Hinnom, where the Jews used to dump refuge and dead animal bodies um, Perhaps even criminal bodies that wouldn't get buried would be taken to this place. It was a, it was a landfill. It was a garbage heap. 
Um, and as with collecting garbage in any culture or civilization, what do you do to garbage? You burn it, right? You have to get rid of it. And so the easiest way to get rid of it is to burn it, especially when you're talking about death of living organisms, right? If you don't burn it, you've got a lot more problems on your hands in terms of disease, etc. So this Valley of Hinnom was the landfill outside of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And this is what he referred to or pointed people to, to metaphorically refer to this place, Ge'ena, hell, that we translate hell, which is just a transliteration through the languages over the millennia. But this word occurs 12 times in the New Testament. How many times do you think Jesus used it? 11. The only other time that it's used in the New Testament is by his brother James in reference to the tongue. 11 times this word is used by Jesus. Most people, including me, at earlier stages in my faith walk, don't realize that hell is talked about almost exclusively by Jesus. Not just more than anyone else, but almost exclusively by Jesus. Hell was a very important topic for Jesus. And obviously, I'm not going to parse out all the varying theological views about the nature of hell, such as conditionalism and universalism, traditionalism. Um, if you want to talk about that or geek out on that some other time with me, you can. I'm not going to dive into any of that. I don't think it's all that relevant per personally for the purposes of what we're discussing, nor do I think it was really all that relevant for why Jesus was talking about it. But this word occurs 11 times in the Synoptic Gospels off the tongue of Jesus and one by his brother. So let's jump in to Matthew chapter 5. I believe this is the first time we see it in the Synoptic Gospels in the order that we read them. Matthew chapter 5, in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, or fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, is taking some traditional teachings, some traditional lessons of morality 
and cultural norms for his audience and obliterating them. He says, you know what? We all agree that if you murder, that's bad, right? Everybody raise your hand if you agree with that basic worldview. If you murder, that's probably not good, okay? He says, all right, we got that. It's agreed upon. It's actually from the Old Testament text that he's referring to there. He says, but guess what? If you have anger in your heart towards your brother, it's the same as murdering them. And you are in danger of the fire of Gehenna. How many of you have ever been angry with someone else? Maybe even someone that you consider a brother or sister, spiritually, physically, whatever. How many of you at that time considered that you were murdering them? I mean, wow, Jesus, really? Jesus, like, I love it. He's like, oh, okay, here's the line right here. Guess what? He doesn't go. He's like. (laughs) The example that he sets of righteousness and the calling that he has of what is holy to God literally obliterates everyone's understanding because we're all like, oh, yeah, totally cool. Got it. It's like the rich young ruler, right? Like, oh, great, I got it. All those since I was a boy, awesome. And then Jesus just takes that line and does like a standing broad jump. He says, one thing you lack. This is, I think, what's important for us with the concept of hell. Then, after teaching about anger in the heart and raising the expectation about what God is like, what his thought is like, what his love is like, what his holiness is like, he says, when you harbor anger, bitterness, hatred, discord in your heart towards someone else, it's as though Jesus is dealing with the internal, not just the external. We might be angry on the road when somebody cuts us off, and we might be able to control ourselves to the point where we don't jump out of the car with a gun and shoot them, though there are those that do not contain themselves to that point. And we think, ha-ha, I'm a righteous man. I didn't just stick my head out the window and give that person a good piece of my mind. I just did it quietly inside my window. Or I did it quietly in my mind. Right? I'm sorry. I'm the only one that struggles with road rage around here. I lived in Atlanta for a long time, so please forgive me, okay? You guys are all righteous drivers here in the mountains. But... Jesus teaches that we have to look inward and that that matters, that what goes on in our heart, in our mind, that that's important to God, even to the point where it could eternally condemn us. It could separate us from God completely. And then he goes on and teaches about adultery. And he says, okay, common traditional worldview. Does everybody agree that it's probably bad to sleep with another man's wife or husband? Is that probably a bad thing? Okay, yeah. Although it's less and less bad in our cultural context. But most people kind of see like, yeah, that's probably not great. Probably causes some damage. Yeah, there's some scar tissue there. Probably not, probably not God's vision of love and happiness and rainbows, right? Jesus says, guess what? Even if you look lustfully at a woman or a man, I don't think this is gender specific, but that if there is lust in your heart, he says, you've already committed adultery. What's he doing? He's working the same thing 
He's broad jumping over these lines again, whether it's murder, whether it's lust. He says what goes on internally matters. And then he says, hell is so bad. Hell is not what you want to the point that you would be better off cutting off your limbs, gouging out your eyes. Of course, I think Jesus is speaking metaphorically. I think he's speaking in such a way to hyperbolize his meaning. Why do I think that? Because I think a person with one hand or with one eye can still sin. A person with one eye or no eyes can still lust. So the act of doing that doesn't necessarily create an environment in which you cannot sin. So that's not his point. And there have been Christians throughout history, some early on in the early church fathers, who literally did this. And they wrote about their regret later. They literally gouged out their eye, taking what Jesus said, not figuratively, but literally. And they regretted it. Why? Because it didn't solve their sin problem in their heart. They were just one eye down, which you could see would be very inconvenient. (laughs) Jesus says, but if you did gouge out your eye and you were only with one hand, that level of inconvenience would be far more preferred than having your whole body thrown into hell. Whatever hell is, Jesus says, it's worth any amount of inconvenience to not go there. He says, cut it off and throw it away. He uses the right hand and the right eye to symbolize the dominance, right? The one that's the most inconvenient for you to lose. And then he says, it's better to live like that than to go to hell. So what's Jesus' point? There is no such thing as repentance that is too radical. You cannot go far enough in efforts to repent. In our efforts to not go to hell, Jesus says, you can't take that too far. And you'll be grateful in the end. Basically, Jesus is saying, you want to avoid hell at all costs. I don't know all of the nuance of hell and is it eternal or is it a nihilism or is it conscious? Is it, you know, is it temporary? There are a lot of views on what exactly hell is going to be like. This much I know. Jesus says, you don't want to go. It's willing. You should be willing to give up anything to lose everything in order to not go there. That's how serious it is. And so now let's make that practical. Do you and I have that attitude toward our repentance? Or is it more casual, more convenient? One of my favorites, and I say favorite because I also have struggled with this and deal with this, but it's not only my favorite, but it's common for a brother or a sister, a man or a woman, to say, you know, I'm really struggling with my sexual purity on the internet. I'm struggling to not look at pornography or other similar types of sexual explicit content. And I or someone might say, well, why don't you cut off access to the internet? Whoa, 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 whoa. That is so extreme. Do you know how inconvenient that would be? I wouldn't be able to use GPS. I wouldn't be able to read my email. I wouldn't be able to check my social media to affirm 
My security, like Dela said, because I have lots of friends on social media. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jesus says, no level of inconvenience is worth you going to hell. So the question for us is, we've got to really examine our hearts. Are we serious about repentance? Do we take Jesus' words about hell seriously or not? We have all kinds of mental gymnastics that we can do. We're like on that mental balance beam, like doing awesome, you know. We're like getting gold medals, bam, you know, like, well, there's grace. God will forgive me. I'm better than that person. I'm better than me at that time in my life. We have all kinds of gymnastics to justify not taking Jesus seriously at his word, right? Or is that just me? Okay, I'll assume it's just me. You guys are awesome. I come up with all kinds of ways to not be radical in my repentance, I'll pretend like I didn't see that. I got one honest, humble brother that's like getting convicted right now. And you know what? That's what Jesus' point is. He's trying to peel off the blinders and say, guys, listen, if anyone gets to speak authoritatively about hell, it's Jesus. John says very specifically that Jesus is the word and existed before everything. So he understands what hell is. We probably never will in this life completely, but he says on his authority, he says, guess what, guys? You better, you'd be better off living with any amount of inconvenience in this life than seeing this reality come to you. Look over in chapter 18. Verse 6 says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, in reference to the children that are there in the context of this passage, those who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I remember reading this one time to a young man, and I thought he was going to punch me in my lip. And so he's using the context of these little children and then he flips it, and he says, the little ones who come to me, who are they? In the context of this passage, Christians, believers. He says, those who believe in me are the little ones that if you cause to stumble, okay? So if you cause your brother or sister to stumble, if you create something that damages your brother or sister's faith in Jesus, Jesus says, it's going to be real bad for you. He says, you would be better off being drowned. I don't think that that's figurative. I think that he's saying that death is going to be better than what is going to eventually happen. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew repeats this phrasing of this teaching twice in his gospel as though to reiterate, to double down and emphasize its importance. And here, 
we've got to think about what does it mean to damage one of these little ones, right? To cause them to stumble. Have you ever considered your behavior and actions and thoughts toward a brother and sister could jeopardize you to be condemned to eternal fire? For me, I think that usually when we think of hell or when I think of hell, we think of explicit sins like sexual morality, adultery, murder, right? Rarely do I think about or find that others think about how I treat my brother, which interestingly is in the same passage in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which they said, if you are angry with your brother in your heart, right? Again, what's important to Jesus? Our relationships, that we would treat each other lovingly, that we wouldn't harbor bitterness or hatred or anger towards one another, that we wouldn't cause someone else to stumble in their faith or to have their faith damaged or diminished or shipwrecked, as Paul would refer to that. How we treat each other matters, and it actually is connected to the topic of hell. That, for me, is very sobering. I get a front row seat into more people's lives than most, right? You saw that pie chart up there? That's 62%. That's my vocation. That's what I'm supported to do. Thank you very much. I love it most days. And if you want to do it like Michael Thompson, we will find a way. I will share my pie with you. And it's a worthy calling. But because of that opportunity that I have and that others have had and have as well, depending on life circumstances that we can be in front of and be with more people maybe than most, you start to see patterns. You start to see consistencies across age and demographic and you start to see things that are commonplace in the flesh. I think that one of the things that's commonplace that I have noticed is we take each other for granted a lot and we don't take how we treat each other seriously enough. And I'm grateful for every person that has come to me and said, hey, I love you, but the way you said that was rather offensive. And I get an opportunity to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. This is what I was hoping to communicate. How could I do that differently or better? That's how I would like to respond, by the way. If I didn't respond that way, just give me another shot, okay? Keep working with me. But that we would take our relationships with each other seriously because Jesus says that there actually could be a connection to hell. Let's end here in Luke chapter 12. So as we discuss hell and basically just have a sobriety about it, and a seriousness about it. I want to talk about the reason why we should have a sobriety and seriousness about it, besides the obvious, which is it's going to suck. Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. I'll start in verse 4, sorry. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Who is that? All human beings. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him 
who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he goes on and he says, are, you, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That number decreases over time, by the way. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I love this tension that Jesus creates. Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. Who is that? Any human being. Easier said than done, right? How many of us are afraid to die? This strikes at the heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus says, don't be afraid to die. Be afraid of God, who can destroy you in a way that people cannot. And then, after this incredibly sobering, bombshell, broad jump over all your lines moments, what does Jesus say? God loves you. He says, fear God, but trust his character. Fear God, who has ultimate authority and power, but God loves you, and he knows you. That, to me, creates this incredible tension, right? That I'm to fear God, but to fear in a way like nothing else I've ever feared before, which is not fear alone, but fear in an appropriate and respectful and correct way. A fear of God's might and power and authority while being coupled with my trust in his love and care and concern for me. That's hard to live out day to day, isn't it? Because there are plenty of times and places and situations that we put ourselves in and that other people do to us and we go, God, do you really know the hairs on my head? Are you really involved? You don't seem too concerned right now. I'm hurting. Jesus says, God loves you. No sparrow falls to the ground without God's awareness. How much more valuable are you? This is the faith that Jesus calls us toward. To believe, sometimes in spite of circumstances, that God values you. And because God values you, this is why we should be motivated to fear him. And that we don't want to go to hell, not just because it's going to suck for us, because ultimately what's motivating that? Self, right? It's ultimately selfish. We don't want to go to hell because why? Because we love God. Why do we love God? Because he loved us first. We don't want to go to hell, not primarily for self-preservation, but to be able to enjoy the love of God, our creator. That's a completely different understanding and approach to avoiding hell, right? Is avoiding hell for the fact that it's going to suck for you and me bad? No, but hopefully it doesn't end there, right? You guys familiar with the term fire insurance in a church? I'm not talking about Allstate. Fire insurance usually boils down to a prayer, inviting Jesus into your heart, maybe being baptized. We have all these mechanisms to ensure our fire insurance. And I would argue that those things are antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. 
Jesus says that we shouldn't be trying to get fire insurance in our pocket just so that we can preserve self, but that we should fall in love with our creator who values us even when we don't deserve it. That is what motivates our sobriety, our seriousness about sin and repentance. That's what motivates us to love each other sometimes when it's hard and we have to forgive and overlook an offense. That's what motivates us to not want to go to hell. It's not just so that it's not bad for us, but so that we can really enjoy a loving heavenly father. So as we close out on the topic of hell, here's my advice. Don't go there. Here's my follow-up advice. Don't go there for the right reasons. Don't go there because God values you. He doesn't want you to go there. But to be just, to just and through justice actually punish wickedness and evil, hell is real. Most of us would not like the idea of a God that's not just, by the way. If evil is not actually repaid and dealt with, we are in trouble. And that's, that's nihilism, right? For any of you guys that study into those worldviews, nihilism is the worldview that nothing matters. There's no good. There's no evil. It's just pure atoms colliding around. And so there is no such thing as evil. If somebody wants to eat a thousand babies, there's no moral imperative not to. That is not the worldview of God. God says there is evil. It is evil, and it will be justly repaid and dealt with and eventually destroyed. That's the beauty of heaven. The opposite of hell is the destruction of all evil. That there would be one great day where there's no more crying or mourning or death or pain. There's no need for walls. There's no night. There is no fear. There is no trepidation. There's no insecurity. Why? Because there is no evil at all. That sounds like a place I want to go to. And Jesus says, let's try to practice that right now. Follow me. Repent. Cast aside, cut off, throw away, get rid of evil in your life and in your heart. And we can begin to experience heaven even right now.